You're listening to Malka Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Alhamdulillah, on medical files, uh, you know, we try and source out uh, many different doctors. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of them that we have this evening is uh, Dr. Mario Shonga. He's in emergency medicine doctor. He's uh, with the, you know, he's got his BSc honors uh, degree in uh, biomedical science. And, you know, just chatting with him, having a lovely chat with him before the show. Uh, he has that vibrancy. He has that enthusiasm. And most important people, he has a refined dis- uh, disposition with, the, you know, so much of dignity and so much of uh, empathy, sympathy and respect. And I liked him instantaneously. Dr. Mario Shonga. Good evening, and thank you very much for joining us on the platforms of Medical Files and uh, uh, Marka Sahaba, the voice of the Ahl Sunnah wal Jamaa. Tell me, how are you doing this beautiful evening? Good evening, Shafat. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm doing very well. Thanks. Now, the big question, very big question for you, Mario, Dr. Mario Shongadio. What made you get into emergency medicine? Oh, that's a, it's a difficult question to answer, but uh, the long and short of it is that um, I, I began my, my medical career actually before I even started uh, studying medicine. Um, I used to volunteer at organization in the Joburg City Centre the late 90s and early 2000s here to assist people living on the street, uh, homeless uh, individuals, uh, partly a feeding scheme and partly a medical input. They actually used to uh, take people that were in their third year of uh, BSc or third year of medicine uh, just to go out and assist with minor care, whatever could be done on the street, and obviously to identify people who needed to go to hospital, obviously, for further care. Um, I did that probably three to four years. Um, then I went into my BSc, subsequently uh, into medicine at Pretoria University. And I've always had a pinch liking the emergency side of things. So when people are acutely in trouble, when people really need help and, you know, nobody knows what else to do and, you know, people are struggling, that's always appealed to me. I always take it as an opportunity privilege to help people in their moments of need. No, absolutely brilliant. And uh, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, uh, when you were on the streets and helping those, the underprivileged of feeding schemes and so forth, that's very noble indeed. And, uh, you know, could you share some experiences with us, you know, the, the, the high and the lows of uh, going out and feeding the, you know, people that are really in need, uh, Dr. Mario Shonga? Yes. Uh, so uh, the, it was with a, a church uh, by the name of the Central Methodist Church. Uh, this feeding scheme, I think since the, the early 80s, a four-man team uh, comprising of a few BSc students, a few uh, third-year medical students. Uh, we used to actually go to quite, uh, how should I put it, very dingy corners of the Joburg CBD. Um, some of the stuff we encountered were as simple to some people who had been assaulted, had actual fractured bones, open wounds, car accidents. And this was during the time when the Department of Health was not actually accepting foreigners into the healthcare system, uh, or not with great difficulty, if I may add. Um, so a lot of the foreigners, particularly Zimbabweans, were left without any medical care in the Joburg City Centre. 
Uh, I remember specifically I had a gentleman who was involved in a motor vehicle accident and sustained a large laceration to his right leg. Uh, approximately, say, about uh, 9, 10 centimeter laceration. If it had been attended to immediately, it could have been sutured closed, it would have gone on well, but because it has been left open, and, and I apologize to the sensitive uh, listeners, but it was infested with infections, particularly maggots. Um, this gentleman was just walking around with, I promise you, a a plastic bag wrapped around his leg, and that's all he had in, in terms of any management of that wound. We actually tended to this wound on the street over three months, uh, whereby we actually cleaned out the wound. Um, we left the maggots in for a little bit because they actually helped to clean the wound, after which we actually removed the maggots, did a deep clean. We cleaned them under local anesthetic on the street because there was literally no hope of us getting admitted. and we actually performed suturing on the street and he actually walked away with a closed wound of his leg. That, I think for me, is my fondest memory in all my medical career. And I, I still can't believe till this day that I was a part of that. I actually feel very privileged to be part of that story. Uh, he went on to actually get a job in the, the CBD. Uh, he opened up a small business, which I believe is still running till today. Uh, just on off um, small streets in, in Johannesburg, uh, uh, sells various uh, as a general trader basically. But it's quite a success story that he came from Zimbabwe with literally nothing to his name and got involved in that accident, got help on the street where he thought he would never get help. And that for me is what drives me to do this. You know, Doctor, you touch on a very sensitive issue there when you talk about foreigners. I mean, we know that uh, the Dudula movement, uh, you know, they're going to hospitals and uh, actually chasing foreigners away and, uh, you know, uh, pulling them out of their beds and so forth. Uh, but here you were, you know, like um, an angel sent uh, to this person. Maybe he couldn't get help at a hospital then. And uh, this is why, uh, you know, uh, people like yourselves uh, were needed. What's your thoughts on that? You know, my thoughts are is that, you know, when you become a public servant of any caliber, whatever your, your job description is, um, if you intend to work in the public space, you have to have a heart to say, you know what, this could have been my mother, this could have been my brother, this could have been my sister, and I could not care where you from, what your story is, and everything, you know, I mean, that for me underlines what professionalism means in the public space to serve people without your own personal prejudice coming in the way. And, you know, with uh, with uh, relation to this to do that, I mean, you just think it's this is sort of like a forerunner to this when, when we were dealing with this. And this was now like late 90s, early 2000s when we were experiencing this situation. And I can't tell you, we had endless amounts of Zimbabweans that struggled to get health care, uh, were either turned away directly by sisters, sometimes even doctors, um, directly away from saying, no, you don't have an ID, you don't have uh, any um, South African documentation, so therefore we cannot treat you, which was actually very, very commonplace. It was actually quite scary. Um, you know, and, and like I said, I, I feel very fortunate that I was able to give somebody that you know, just to give them that landing to say, you know what, I'm a human being, I deserve care no matter where I am, and, you know, I hope and I pray in my heart that if 
this person encounters somebody else in need that they would be able to pay for it. And that for me is my driving force. Well, you know, I, I like what you said, uh, your empathy, your sympathy comes through and, uh, you know, your attitude of gratitude. I mean, I think, uh, you know, you, 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 you set up for bigger things and because uh, you also have that uh, quality of, uh, you know, he that humbles himself will be elevated and he that elevates himself will be humbled. And uh, full marks to you, uh, Dr. Mario Shonga. And uh, great to know that. Also, doctor, let's move on and uh, tell us about uh, those moments we, you know, we all fear the patient's uh, journey in an emergency room. I mean, uh, you know, the whole family members, you yourself, your whole team, you know, take us through the whole scenario, doctor. All right. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of background um, in terms of my direct involvement in emergency medicine since I graduated. Um, it's a very funny story. Even when I was at university in my final years uh, of study, I gravitated to emergency medicine already then. Um, and I've always been in some degree or a large way with the government emergency units for a long time. I actually only started working in the private emergency units uh, probably from about 2016. Prior to that, it was mostly uh, government. The the foray is where you uh, took, and I'll keep it very simple, have a painful limb, whether right or left, no matter, just a pain in your body, let's say a limb, for instance. This pain up from sleep, no idea what this pain is. You have no idea what to do about it. Half of your thought is, you know, let me take a panado, maybe it'll settle and I'll go and see my doctor later on in the morning. But the patient deal with it and I need help. You perhaps call an ambulance, ambulance can take you through, or you perhaps are able to at least drive yourself to, uh, to the hospital. So you arrive, you go into the thing, let's say you drove yourself, and that is where how do I even get into the emergency unit? Where is it located? Now, most private hospitals have a signage that will direct you to say this is the emergency unit. But problem number one is how there will always be the entrance which the ambulance uses, which I think any normal human being would look at and say, no, the entrance I'm supposed to go through. That's probably just for the ambulance. The access through the pavement is cut at night uh, for security reasons. So you end up there, not sure if you're supposed to go through the ambulance entrance or to go through the other entrance, which can be highly confusing while you are still in pain. The answer to the question there, very simply, is whichever entrance is available, you press the buzzer or whatever anyone there to go in. Most of the time that emergency entrance is likely the entrance into the emergency. The next step is once you get into the emergency unit, <clears throat> what do you do in order to be seen? The best answer to that is to find the nearest nurse that is available on the floor or even a porter or even any, actually any individual that's working for the hospital will be able to direct you down the path. The first thing that needs to happen is for you to go through a process called triage. 
just to give an idea of what triage is, triage is a system, it's an international system used everywhere in the world to decide whether a patient is critical or stable. And obviously of varying categories of stability. <clears throat> obviously, if you are highly unstable, you will be given a designation to be seen first. Obviously, if you are fairly stable, for instance, if you're having a cold or a flu, you will be given another designation. This system allows us to prioritize absolute emergencies and obviously our what we could call GP cases, uh, you know, whether you've got a cold and flu, stuff that is not going to hamper your biological functioning in the next couple of minutes or hour or even longer. Um, this system has been developed over, I can't even say long, it's been forever. This system has been around, it's been readapted. Um, I think if you ever watch any of the medical shows, they'll talk about uh, green codes, red codes, yellow codes, orange codes, and all of these have designations in terms of severity of illness. And it doesn't take into account what the actual diagnosis is, but it talks about how badly your physiology is being deranged. When we talk about physiology, we're talking about your blood pressure, your pulse, your blood sugar, um, your ability to breathe, your level of consciousness. These are sort of key drivers of, to say whether you are in a lot of trouble that we need to do something right now or we can wait a little bit. So the reason for this is that you can imagine if I'm dealing with a patient with a colon and somebody comes in with a stroke and I tell the stroke patient to wait, there's timelines that we have with a stroke patient that we need to achieve in order to either reverse the stroke or prevent progression of the stroke. So I have to be able to know that this patient is priority number one, and I have to deal with him, and then I have to go to the cold and flu patient and say, apologies, I would love to deal with you right now, but I have to deal with this red coat patient that has imminent threats to life. So that is sort of the first foray into when you get into the unit, the first thing that needs to happen. Now, the next part is obviously depending on what your personal level of emergency is, it will also determine the next factor, who goes to open your file. Now, whether it's uh, private or public, this part is similar. If you are an extremist, meaning that you're, you're in danger of losing your life at this point, a family member or somebody will have to do your re registration on your behalf. So they will be directed to the admin staff, which in the private casualties runs 24-7. It's usually located within the unit. And that person will go to uh, open up the file. They'll ask you for your medical aid card, your ID card. And by the way, when you go to an emergency unit, please have both. The reason is, is that the medical aids require positive identification of its members on the medical aid in order to reimburse the hospital doctors and so forth. So we do need a copy of both your ID and the medical aid card. So always remember to take both or even your driver's license is an acceptable form of identification. Or if you're foreign, passport is acceptable as well. Um, so moving forward, once, while the file has been opened, which is a simultaneous process, you will be tended to according to your triage, color, and severity of illness. There's usually 
a waiting area if you are non-emergent. And obviously, the, the idea is not to delay your care. I think the first misnomer I have to address here is that people assume that once you are waiting in the emergency unit, you have been deemed as an unimportant case. And I would like to dispel that misnomer. It means that we may have far more emergent cases that we have to deal with first. Sometimes these cases require ongoing management and you will be attended to at the next available moment. It does not mean your case is unimportant. It just means that we just have priority. Now, most emergency units are run by plus minus three nurses and one doctor for day shift and night shift. The, the company that I particularly work for currently, which runs a few casualties around uh, KZN uh, by the name of ER Consulting, uh, has a system whereby should the one doctor on call be overwhelmed, they have the system to have a second doctor come to come out and assist. But it's with the idea that most of the night is managed by one doctor. And, um, you know, the idea is, is that emergency medicine is not uh, designed to be an after-hours uh, GP practice, which I think a lot of people uh, think that that is the duality. Either you are critical or you can be seen as a GP practice. And then sometimes, unfortunately, people assume it is sort of a queue system like you would find at your local general practitioner's rooms. Uh, unfortunately, because of the nature of the space, we have to be ready for critical emergencies. So I could be in consultation with your cold and flu, and the sister can come say, Doc, listen, there's a patient whose blood pressure is 200 and something over 100 and something. Uh, we are worried about him stroking. Can you please come and assist us with this patient? At which point I would have to stop the consultation with you and, and go and see that patient. So this is sort of the most critical understanding is that number one, you are being triaged according to the severity of your illness and how likely it is to compromise your stability. The next part is when you are being treated, say um, you are being treated now for a minor case, <clears throat> we don't have the capacity to do extensive investigation into uh, chronic conditions. And when I say we don't have that capacity, the reason is that our primary goal is to deal with affectations that are hyperacute, meaning that these are very, very severe problems that happen in the night or during the day, and we are unsure as to what the source is. So if, let's say, we do find a critical problem, the highest likelihood is that you would be treated emergently for anything that is a life threat within the emergency unit. There, we would refer you on and admit you for the particular specialty of medicine that would deal with your problem. So in the emergency unit, we, we would not do exhaustive investigations into your condition. Our investigations would start and stop at the point of keeping you safe. So we do not really do, so let's say, uh, let's say you have a stroke. We will initiate immediate therapy to either reverse or prevent progression of the stroke. But what the source of your stroke is and all of these things would be within the domain of 
the specialist that we admit you. In this case, it's either a physician or a neurologist, depending what is available at the, the hospital where we're working at. And they would take over the extensive workup. Um, so that would not fall into the domain of emergency. Um, I think at this point, an important uh, thing to also is if, let's say, you came for a minor condition, say a cold, we try by all means not, you know, if you come in with a runny nose, a fever, and I mean, it's obvious as day that this is a cold and the flu, we will give some emergent therapy with it. In, uh, most of the time, it will be in the form of an injection uh, if we have uh, some oral medication that can be used. But we are also not, not a dispensing point for acute medications, particularly tablets. We do not keep stores of that. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, the issue there lies in is that you would need a full-time pharmacist to manage that um, for the emergency unit alone, which is not covered by the medical aids and even in government there's not really that we keep very simple medications uh, for the um, less acute conditions uh, we tend to keep more things for children uh, so you know little, little bits of um, uh, antibiotic syrups uh, some tomato syrup these type of things but uh, what we will do if you have an infection and we think that it requires treatment, we may even give you the first dose of antibiotics via drip and write your script to get your medication at a pharmacy at uh, obviously the next available point, which will probably, if you came at night, would be the next morning. So that I just want to put out as a broad understanding of the emergency unit uh, experience. I think I'll submit back to you, Shafat, uh, at this point to see if there's any questions regarding that. I'm sure there's probably a ton of questions surrounding medical aid and the visitation of the the medical uh, of the unit uh, based on your medical aid. Where do you go and how do you go? Yeah, you know what? Uh, I don't want to go there because the poor man listening to me now is saying, hey, I'm already out of it. I'm not in the equation altogether. So uh, let's give them a break, uh, you know, Mario, and, uh, you know, we'll move on. <laughs> you know, you and I, I know where you come from. I know your heart. So I, I, won't, I won't go there. And yeah, I think we are very much alike when it comes to that. Um, you know, what common complaints uh, land a person in casualty? Uh, okay, so internationally, uh, you'd be interested to find out that this is actually studied internationally um, everywhere in the world. And obviously, this list varies according to which country you're in, uh, resources that are available. Uh, but probably the number one complaint internationally, and I mean, this is everywhere, is gastrointestinal diseases such as your common diarrhea and vomiting. Uh, that's probably number one. And, and second after that is abdominal pain. So that's pain of the tummy, regardless of the location. Thereafter would be respiratory complaints. So it would be your respiratory tract infection, which is commonly known as your colds, flus, sinusitis, and then lower respiratory tract infections, such as pneumonias, bronchitis. In our country, again, more specific would be TB, uh, the stuff. And then thereafter, it would be our trauma-related uh, injuries. So uh, car accidents, uh, various fractures, different parts of the body. That, again, is also studied individually. Um, there are more 
upper limb traumas, then there are lower limb traumas, and then head injuries. Head injuries is probably, I think, number five or six in the list for South Africa. Um, and thereafter, uh, it, it devolves into various more rare conditions that you can imagine. Uh, but those are sort of our top uh, reasons for visitation uh, in the emergency unit. Yeah, you know what uh, also concerns me? I mean, I, I think we both from KwaZulu-Natal and, you know, our oceans are getting polluted, you know, with what? And the E. coli levels and the people, uh, uh, when they're opening their tap, they say, hey, I have to boil this water. And most of us are queuing at these, uh, you know, osmosis and all these different uh, shops that are selling us uh, at, uh, I think, 170 a litre or some 150 a litre. But we're actually buying water. Hopefully it's uh, being, uh, you know, cleaned out properly, filtered properly that we are drinking. But as you talk about uh, gastroenteritis, I mean, uh, E. coli and all, how is that uh, related or connected, uh, Mario? All right. So E. coli is a very interesting organism. Um, E. coli is actually a natural occurring bacteria within your intestinal uh, flora, meaning your normal uh, bacteria that you find in your intestine. It, there's different subtypes of E. coli. Some of them are actually perform critical functions in our body, including converting uh, uh, certain uh, foodstuffs into important chemical precursors within the body, uh, helping with absorption of things like vitamin K and various other nu nutrients. So E. coli actually is a positive organism within our body. The problem is, is that there are certain what we call pathological subtypes, which there are five top ones that uh, I'm not going to go into too much details, but, but these are the ones that are pathological. And as I've said, that most of these bacteria exist in, in the gut. And the so obviously defecating and defecation material, uh, feces, carries a huge burden of these Unfortunately, amongst them will be a lot of these pathological species. So the whole issue with the beaches being closed and so forth is obviously that raw sewage has leaked into the ocean uh, in large, vast amounts um, that has resulted in the amount of E. coli in the sea increasing. There's always a background amount of E. coli that lives in seawater and even drinking water. But it's when it reaches a critical mass of a certain amount, uh, we usually measure this in parts per million, that it becomes a danger to human health. E. coli particularly uh, is what we call a gram-negative bacteria. Now, uh, most of the bacterial infections that we get, particularly in pneumonias, and these are usually what we call gram-positives. Uh, they occupy a lot of the upper airway, which starts from the tip of the mouth right down to, actually even down to the lower airways most of the time. But they're not in high enough amounts to cause disease. When they start exceeding a certain amount, that's when they start to occupy spaces that they should not. And it's the same thing with E. coli. Now, with these pathologicals, once they enter the gut, they tend to overtake the good E. coli and are replaced by the, let's call them bad E. coli for now, just for simplicity's sake. And they start to migrate from the gut into the blood. At this point, you start developing sepsis. Now, these gram-negative E. coli produce um, 
toxins called endotoxins, which they exhibit on their on their surfaces, which are highly toxigenic and elicit a septic response in the body. This causes significant amount of illness and unfortunately, if it's uh, significant enough, can bring a patient to very critical levels, usually requiring ICU admission and so forth. So this is now, uh, I think, what people have classically known as food poisoning, although that uh, that is a very broad topic, but this now is E. coli manifesting in, in the gut and trans, uh, trans uh, migrating into the bloodstream and causing significant disease. Now, there's about five different subtypes. Each has sort of their mechanisms by which they enter the bloodstream from the gut. I'm not going to go into that detail, but to give an idea is that the, this usually, once you get to the point where there is either sepsis or sept, this usually requires ICU admission. So the next question is, like you said, now, how do you prevent this from happening? Well, well depends where your source of water is coming from. So obviously there's concerns, particularly in KZN currently, about the quality of our drinking water. Um, there's arguments back and forth about how badly it's affected. Um, I think at this point there isn't actual warnings to our tap water. The majority of it is actually seawater. Uh, you can imagine when you go swimming in the sea, uh, X amount of seawater will be ingested. It's just part of the process of swimming in the sea, I suppose. And particularly with the younger children, they uh, would probably take a few more gulps than the adults. So this is where the concern comes in. Um, so if you, um, next time when you visit the beach, it's just something out of interest. If you go to a lot of these life-saving stations, you will see there's a board that's always there, and it usually actually gives you the eco-like in parts per million and it's always been there and obviously with that amount it has to be updated and they usually check the quality of the seawater on a sometimes three monthly basis sometimes six monthly basis to check what the levels are it's always available that information so we've obviously reached that amount where we said you know what now this is a day so look people will are in naturally and i i don't blame anyone for this will have natural paranoia once we've mentioned a water source being contaminated, the next question in anybody's mind logically, what about our drinking water? Is it safe? And I think uh, we all have parents that will be like, you know what, not taking any chances. We are boiling every liter that we drink. This is not a, you know, uh, I think that's fine and I understand people buying this but I'm <laughs> I'm pretty sure that people are really swinging this to their uh, uh, entrepreneurial skills if I may put it that way to push us buying um, water from like you said from these reverse osmosis uh, vendors and you know all of these types but I think at this point we are not that concerned about our drinking water although I, I think there has been mention of a few areas where there was contamination within the KZN area, but I think those have been resolved. But in general, to my knowledge, to date, the tap drinking water is safe for consumption. Um, so I have no information regarding to say that there is an extensive contamination of tap drinking water. 
Um, so I, I hope this gives enough information to the listeners to understand where we're coming from in terms of this E. coli. I tell you, you know, doctor, you absolutely, are you a lecturer by chance? I mean, do you lecture? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was a, a support staff uh, at University of Pretoria, in fact, to my own class, actually, because of my background in BSc, uh, where I'm an anatomist and physiologist as well. Uh, so I gave a lot of support. Uh, so I had, a, I was in the lecturing space per se as a junior lecturer at one point. So yes, uh, I think you're picking up on that. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I interviewed thousands and thousands of people, maybe ten thousand, but uh, I picked you up uh, nicely then. Uh, brilliant. I mean, you have a very cool, calm, collected manner. And uh, did any radio station approach you? Hey, you got the voice, uh, Doc? No, no, not unfortunately not. Uh, um, I think the only time I've actually spoken in a, like a professional capacity for a medical thing was actually for a church uh, event. Um, this was during the, the COVID pandemic. Um, uh, also, just a, a sort of a sidebar there, I was highly involved with the nurses that got infected with COVID uh, at um, St. Augustine's and Kingsway Hospital. I actually treated quite a few of them in that initial part of the pandemic um, and in that space there was a lot of it was it was the worst period I think in terms of infectious disease in South Africa but from the medical point of view it was the first time that I felt so much com camaraderie amongst doctors nurses where we would spend every week trying to find out what the latest information was regarding COVID wherever we could get information and we shared information beautifully during that time. Um, and it was in those spaces where I was giving short talks uh, to my colleagues and them to us. So, this, you know, this is actually forms part of medicine, being able to discuss, uh, chron you know, chronic conditions or acute conditions to say, look, what's the latest? What's going on? How can we better assist patients? You know, what's the literature saying? So this is a continuous uh, feedback feedback process that we're always looking both with ourselves, we do it to ourselves. I mean, every day I read an article or two just to keep abreast of what's changing. I can't read everything. Unfortunately, I wish I could. There's so much information, but we try to keep up with things that would change our practice and obviously empower us to help people better. Um, so that is where I've had to develop the, uh, the skill to be able to talk to people and, you know, both academic and non-academic uh, uh, individuals and I have to be able to pitch my information correctly to each uh, person. There's no use me using so much jargon and uh, you know I'm speaking to Joe Pillay who runs a hardware store around the corner and he's like uh, so you are talking about pneumatization of aviolo macrophages and you'll be like what is that you know it's pointless I need to be able to tell him that you know that that's what a pneumonia is. <laughs> <laughs> so that is uh, my background, basically. Well, you know, I've been uh, uh, interviewed Dr. Shankara Chetty on uh, those issues. I mean, you know, there's so many different uh, doctors that I interviewed on uh, that same uh, COVID issue, the pros and cons. And hey, I tell you, there's a tug of war there. You know, you talk about four C's like that, and that one is like that. The the pharmaceuticals and doing, and you know, uh, Pfizer did this and they did that, and the whole thing is like, you know what? I just said, okay, let's keep it out. Let's see, you know what, each one to themselves. But I like your 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 style and I like uh, the way you talk. And uh, perhaps, you know, 
I mean, I, I got on Dr. Shankara Chetty. I think he's also a microbiologist and um, he's a GP. And uh, uh, because there's quite a few uh, doctors from the World Health Organization, you know, having opposite views and what's going on. And, uh, you know, is it a genetically or is it a bio warfare and all that? I mean, we won't get into that yeah. because yeah, we, the focus is on you, <laughs> doctor. You are the focus. Let us not get into uh, that. Maybe some other shows you say, hey, Shafat, yeah. you know what? we can get into the but this is about you what you do and you know what emergency do you find most challenging doctor so there's probably two of the or actually three of the most uh, challenging emergencies um mainly because they have uh time frames uh for us to to manage i'm going to start with a stroke uh, a stroke in medical terms is named a cerebrovascular accident. And as you can hear from the name, uh, cerebrovascular, so the blood vessels of the cerebrum, which is your brain, having an accident. So what kind of accident can happen? You know, I mean, this is now, you know, sometimes uh, a lot of specialists and others talk about a CVA. That's the term they use a lot of time. No, this patient's had a right-sided or left-sided CVA, and the patient, what's that? So a stroke comes in sort of three forms, if I may put it that way. And uh, unfortunately, these three forms, I'm going to discuss them anatomically so you understand where they come from. The first one is what we call an embolic stroke. So this is where a blood clot has formed at some point in your arterial blood system. So the arterial blood system is your blood system that carries your oxygenated blood. And this clot of varying size travels like a little bead in the blood system until it arrives in the vessels of the brain. And when it reaches a small enough blood vessel where it can no longer pass, it wedges itself into that blood vessel, cutting off blood supply to whichever part of the brain that that vessel supplies. The brain has sort of three major vessels that we are concerned about. We have what we call an anterior cerebral blood supply. So that supplies the front part of the brain. We have a middle cerebral artery, which supplies the middle to the, uh, you know, to the sides of the brain. And then there's a posterior cerebral circulation, which is obviously the back of the brain. Now, with each of these blockages, there's different clinical patterns that we see. I'll talk very briefly about that in a moment. So that is the first type of stroke, which we call an embolic stroke. Then there is what we call a thrombosis stroke. So thrombosis is not freely moving in the bloodstream, but has formed on the wall of a particular blood vessel. This is divided into two um, sections. Because outside of the skull, and we, everything outside the skull medically is termed extracranial. So these will be the big blood vessels of the neck going towards the head. The, I think the one blood vessel maybe people know from general media and uh, just general knowledge is the carotid arteries. Those are two big blood vessels that you can feel if you put your fingers to your neck, pulse in the front of your neck, just on either side of your Adam's apple. If you put your fingers there, you can feel a poof. Those are your carotid arteries. Those arteries can be closed off by a clot forming within those blood vessels, and it can actually cut off blood supply to the brain. 
The next one is the smaller vessels within the skull. So you can get thrombosis uh, of the vessels. Like I mentioned, there's those three sections of the brain, the front, the middle, and the back. Individually have blockages of thrombosis in the vessels. Depending on how far down will determine the extent of, of um, the stroke. So commonly know stroke as somebody having a face that is drooping and one side of the body that is weak. And I think, I think media has obviously put that out there and they've done quite well in educating the public on that and I commend them on that. But there's another form of stroke which I think people are less aware of and that's the posterior circulation stroke which involves the back parts of the brain. The back parts of the brain are involved mainly with balance which is actually part of the small brain, which we call the cerebellum. And then there's other features such as vision, which sits in the little lobe, the posterior part of the brain. And also you can have uh, problems with motor, um, motor programming, such as what we call ataxia. That's the inability to really coordinate your, your steps or hand movements. Um, you can also have what we call apraxia. So apraxia is a condition whereby you're unable to do your well-known uh, motor functions. For instance, putting on your jacket. That, as soon as you lose that ability to know that step one is put one arm into one sleeve and all of that, we call that an apraxia. So this is the lesser-known stroke which does happen. And some is only heralded, unfortunately, by dizziness. So um, coming back to why this is a problem is that usually and this is now ratified in all the major cardiovascular entities, there's two that we sort of um, respond to internationally in terms of changing our practice, is the American Heart Association, and then there's the European Society of uh, Cardiology, or ESC. These are two major bodies that influence our management of cardiovascular disease, and particularly strokes, that gives us a window of about four and a half hours from onset of symptoms, whether it be dizziness, weakness, facial drooping, uh, uh, slurring of speech, those types of symptoms which I think people do know a little bit better about, to the time that we can reverse the stroke. If a patient comes in after four and a half hours, this limits our options in terms of terminating the stroke and returning function to the patient. Um, so. Even when the patient comes, what we call in, so in time meaning that the patient has arrived less than 4.5 hours of the stroke, we have to have a time limit of saying that all the investigations, that is bloods, a scan of the brain to determine what type of uh, stroke there is. And there's one other type of stroke, which I haven't mentioned yet, but I'm going to tell you why the brain scan is actually important. Um, what is the safety of therapy in this patient. Another form of stroke, uh, which is not actually a stroke, it's actually a bleed where there is a rupture of blood vessels in the brain. It has the effect of obviously causing the same symptoms. So the patient may have weakness or uh, slurring of speech, but it is not a clot forming that has gone and blocked off the vessel or a clot forming in the vessel blocking off the supply. This is rather direct bleed into the brain tissue. And that is called a hemorrhagic stroke. 
Now, the hemorrhagic strokes, depending on where they're located in the brain, they can be repaired or cannot be repaired. Actually, in reality, the majority of them do happen. And these happen in patients with uncontrolled blood pressure most of the time. Tend to not be repairable because in order to drain that blood, you would have to go through very vital pieces of brain tissue, which would cause other um, fallouts. So, unfortunately, we don't want to cause one's trying to sort out problem number one. Now, with the other strokes, uh, I think now that I've discussed that it's a that form, the logical thing is that we drugs that can, and this brings in the term of the treatment that we use for embolic or thrombotic strokes called fibrinolysis or fibrinotherapy. So this is the medical term for us a buster, uh, something to allow blood flow back into those affected parts of the brain. And like I said, the most difficult part there is that you only have four and a half hours. Look at where did this clot develop? If it's developed below the level of the, the neck vessels of the brain, usually it involves the heart. There may be an underlying heart attack that has caused clots to be formed within the heart and that is shot up to the brain. So you may be dealing with two conditions. You may be dealing with a stroke with an underlying heart attack. So that is, again, another issue. That is an entity on its own. I tell you, doctor. Now, heart attack uh, a limitation. Yeah, you know what? Uh, you, 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 you absolutely, you know, you, you got your whole class here and they're all mm. listening to you very int intently. But I want to fast forward. Because, yes. you know, we've I've got about uh, a, a maximum here, about uh, 10 minutes to go for the show. No I can problem. Also, I, I, can, I can see the screen also uh, light, uh, lighting up. <laughs> now, 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 you know, when a patient is in the, in the emergency room, are they in their right senses and can they communicate effectively, uh, doctor? In, in the setting of a stroke, uh, I would say probably the majority of patients are able to communicate, uh, but depends which part of the brain is affected. Sometimes they are able to understand what you're saying, but because of the affectation of the nerves that supply the tongue and the mouth, they are unable to communicate words. And this is called aphasia. And aphasia is broken down into two, where either they're unable to understand your words but can speak, or are able to understand your words, but are unable to speak. And those are what we call sensory or motor phases, just to break the down simply. But their level of consciousness is mostly intact most of the time. Um, so they are able in some way to communicate. Sometimes we have to give them a uh, what they're going. Most of the time we are fortunate that there are family members that are able to treat on what has happened, uh, what we like to call in medicine, so, you've, uh, you know, the husband has had a stroke and the wife saw the whole thing happen and she will relay the information. And usually the family members are abreast of their chronic medical conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, cholesterol, these type of things. So most of the time they are. Uh, with some of the other conditions, the patients may come in incapacitated. For instance, a heart attack. Depending on what stage we catch them at, sometimes they may be unconscious. And even with the the him they may come in unconscious so at that point we have to obviously negate the history taking and get to scanning blood uh, bloods and so forth so we have to become detectives now and to try and find out why is this patient not communicating 
Japan, you still there? Uh, uh, good, you called me because there are some, you know, some of this, uh, what they call this gremlins come in and they're pinching at our communication. Thank you, uh, Doc. And I'm looking at a message from uh, Masi. She said, Assalamu alaikum, medical files. I'm captivated by the topic. I want to know from Dr. Mario Shonga, are patients injected to calm them or, uh, or put them sleep as soon as they land in casualty? That's a very good question from Masi in, in Umshlanga. And by the way, you know, when they say, Assalamu alaikum, uh, we have, a, you know, our predominantly Muslim uh, listenership. It means a peace be upon you. So, you know, this is the, 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 the greeting. So how would you respond to Masi, uh, doctor? Assalamu alaikum, Masi. Thank you so much uh, for your question. And that is a brilliant question. Um, you know, uh, uh, calming tablets, as, as she's put it, or some form of calming medication. It depends on the pathology. You can imagine in the stroke, if the patient is already having a decreased level of consciousness, we are not really wanting to take that further down because we want as much information from the patient directly as possible. So if the patient is awake, he may be stressed out about having the stroke, and that's perfectly normal. We understand. But I believe the first form of calming medicine that you should administer to any patient coming to either emergency unit or GP practice is you as the doctor talking to the patient, telling them what you think is wrong and what you are about to do for them. So they, this must be the primary form of helping the patient to come to terms to what has happened to them. Um, using calming medication can actually interfere with diagnostics. Sometimes it's beneficial, sometimes it's not. It's very difficult. It's a very, very broad topic. But if the primary condition is, let's say, an anxiety, uh, you know, we have thousands upon thousands of people who are diagnosed with either a panic disorder or a general anxiety condition or an anxiety condition secondary to say past uh, emotional traumas such as post-traumatic stress disorder uh, you know anxiety can come from all sorts of uh, spectrums you know so in those cases yes we can because at that point we've made an assessment that the cause for the uh, uh, anxiety is not caused by some underlying um, brain or cardiovascular disease. And at that point, we could safely say, okay, you know what? I can see you having a very tough time. I can see you anxious. Let me give you something. But we are exceptionally cautious to first assess the patient. And this comes back to when I spoke about this, uh, Marcy. I spoke about the triage system. And the triage system allows us to assess uh, uh, early on to say, is there some underlying biological reason for this person's change in mentation, or is, is this something that is not biological? And what would the implication be in terms of giving this? A lot of the times, let's say I am busy with an emergency and the uh, and patient has come in, and let's say they're hyperventilating or having some sort of panic attack. The nurses will come and present to me and say, listen, Doc, I know you're busy at the moment, but I've just received a gentleman through the doors, uh, Mr. X and Y. He's come in. He's hyperventilating. His triage score is actually a green. We did not find any neurological fallouts. We did not find any 
uh, vital fallouts and so forth. Would it be okay, doctor, for me to give a calming medication in the interim while they wait for you to be seen? So this is a decision-making that I have to make on a daily basis. I do this every single day. And it's uh, so in terms of that, to answer you, Marcy, it depends on what the presentation is. We always endeavor to help patients calm down, but I'm a strong believer talking to patients calms patients down. And, you know, I don't say that in a means, because, you know, sometimes that may be taken as almost derogatory to say, oh, patients are just, you know, very uh anxious when they come in. We we treat the anxiety of the patient as realistic and something that needs help. So we always feel that if we are able to explain, and I've, I've proved this in my own practice time and time again, talking to patients and explaining to them what their vitals mean, what's happening to them, calms patients down. And it's not only just the responsibility of the casualty doctor, but the casualties too. They are if I may put this, uh, the next time you see a casualty sister, please give them a hug and just thank them for their heart because they are the backbone of the emergency system. They are the first point of contact with most patients and they are the first to alleviate your fears. I tell you, Dr. Mario Shonga, I mean, you look at the time there, it's gone. It virtually <laughs> went away because, you know, uh, you know, I need to bring you on to a special like a Q&A session, because there's so many questions here, and you're going to do, uh, you know, uh, very soon, maybe, you know, a, a month's time, and so you need to come back, because uh, you, you flowed this morning, uh, I mean, uh, I mean this evening, sorry, and you really enjoyed uh, your, your, your company. Perhaps your parting words before I let you go. Uh, parting words, I will be very happy to have you, uh, to have myself on your show as often as you'd like. I, I really enjoy the space. I love, I love giving information. And I just want to thank the listeners of Marquez Radio for taking the time out to listen to this. Um, just uh, last thing is that uh, I currently um, am working at Hillcrest Hospital, the Hillcrest Busamed Private Hospital, uh, part of the Busamed Group. But I also do work at um, uh, the other units, particularly in Umschlanga, the Umschlanga Netcare, and Etiquini uh, uh, Lenmed Hospital. So I look forward to possibly meeting some of the listeners sometimes at one of these units if I'm around. Uh, feel free to engage me and say hi if you get around. And I, I hope I'll see you guys soon, and I'll look forward to the next show. Tell you, you're a cool, calm, and collected guy, and I'm sure our listeners would love to meet you. Have a beautiful and uh, lovely evening ahead, uh, Doc. I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much, uh, Shafat. I appreciate it, and have a great day. Uh, evening. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah no, we, we, we will. I work, over, I work overnight. I apologize. I work overnight. <laughs> <laughs> no, even, I'm so used you know, to talking about day and night. <laughs> no, no, I know. For you, it's no day, no night, because you're in the twilight zone, you see. So yeah. I, I'll, just, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much, Doc, and as I said, we'll talk to you soon. Time for us to go for the Isha Azan, and inshallah, we will continue after that.